came across this one Good Morning America video. It said, wild animals are roaming the streets and reclaiming the world. In this episode of the Fancy Scientist podcast, I want to talk about what's going on with the wild animals, with humans in lockdown, how they're responding, why they're responding, good things and bad things, and what this means for us and what this means for wildlife. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining. I am Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, and hopefully I sound better to you this time. I got a new microphone. I have had so many problems with my past recording device that I actually recorded the first two episodes on my computer and phone. I always shoot for progress, not perfection, because if you try to make things perfect, you probably will never start because things are never perfect. See, I can't even say perfect right. So today we're talking about COVID-19, how all the humans or a lot of us humans have been inside and the different animal stories that have come out as a result of this. And I'd like to offer my commentary as a wildlife biologist as to how unusual these types of behaviors are and how us humans have affected wildlife in this way. So let's get started. Here are some examples of some of the animal stories that I came across that have happened in the past few months. There was a mountain lion found in downtown Santiago, Chile. Kangaroo hopping along in the city of Adelaide, South Australia. Penguins, this one was fun to watch. Penguins in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. An alligator in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. That one's not too surprising. Coyotes in San Francisco, langur monkeys on a car in India, a raccoon walking midday in New York City's Central Park, and mountain goats in Wales. So what's going on with all these animal stories? Probably the first and biggest wildlife story that popped up was on dolphins returning to the canals in Venice. I didn't mention this one because that one turned out to be a hoax. The film was taken somewhere else and yeah, people just made it up. Christina Lynn, who has a YouTube channel on wildlife, she actually did a great YouTube video about that, about debunking it. I have to tell you, I initially fell for it, but then I was like, the water looks a little too blue. I don't know. I've never been to Venice, but that's not how I would imagine the water would look like. So why? So let's talk about first what's going on with these animals. Why are these animals moving? So animals move for several reasons. The main reasons why animals move are to eat, to mate, and to avoid predators. In some of these animal stories, we can definitely figure out what they're doing. Some animals were attracted to new food sources. For example, in London, 
you saw images of fallow deer grazing on these really nice green lawns. Obviously, they're attracted to these well-manicured lawns that provide yummy grasses for them. In uh, this town in Wales, geez, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Landudno, Landudno, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In this town, though, there are these wild Kashmiri goats, and they came down from the, the mountainside, and they also went to the city. And at first, I was like, why are these goats going to the city? It looked like they were just in, you know, cement streets and on sidewalks. But if you looked at more of the pictures, you would see that they're actually eating some of the newly planted vegetation, some of the ornamental vegetation that people put outside of schools, their homes. So these guys were also attracted to a new food source. In other cases, animals have clearly lost their food sources. There's this one video that went viral of monkeys, and they normally are dependent on tourists for food. And this was in Thailand. And when tourists stopped going there, they their food source was removed. And the monkeys just like overran the streets and there was about like a thousand of them in one place and they were going into garbage as as much as they could and scavenging for whatever food that they found. I'm going to go on my mini side rant here. This is why we do not feed wildlife, why I never recommend feeding wildlife. I know this is a strange situation with tourism falling greatly. When I went to Kuala Lumpur last year, uh, we went to Batu Caves, and there were monkeys outside the caves, and so many people fed them. My gosh, it made me so angry. And the reason why you don't want to feed the monkeys is because they will adopt these aggressive behaviors like this. If you watch the video of the monkeys, there's it looks like hundreds, maybe a thousand of them in this area, and they're just they're just being really aggressive and grouping together. When I was at Batu Caves, I was just surprised at how willing people were to get so close to the animals. They forget that these are wild animals. They can bite you. They can spread diseases. Some people, I watched them like with their toddlers, like pushing their toddlers to go right up to these monkeys and feed them. And... The food that we give these monkeys is also not good for them. We have to think about um, not only our own safety, but their health as well. I saw somebody give a monkey a soda bottle, and the monkey chugged it like it was a human. This does not surprise me at all that there's troops of monkeys going throughout different areas in Southeast Asia looking for food. In India, this image was a bunch of monkeys on top of a single car, and it looked like there was food inside. It looked like you could see some plant uh, material outside of the car. And this is probably a case, again, where these monkeys were depending on tourists for, for food. I would imagine this is a popular tourist area. And once the food sources are removed, they start looking into where people stay. Monkeys especially can get aggressive with food. In addition to Batu Caves, I also have a lot of stories from Kenya going to resorts. You know, the tourists love to see the monkeys. They get excited by seeing this wildlife. It's it's fun for them to see a monkey come down the tree, sit by the pool, steal food. 
but it's not so fun for the people who live there and for the staff that have to constantly shoo them out of these places. When the food source is removed, we can really see some negative effects on wildlife. Again, don't feed the monkeys. Here in the U.S., we've also heard about the New York City rats. They're having a hard time, too. I've even heard that they were cannibalizing each other. And then there's been uh, Sika deer in Japan who also lost food sources because of tourists. They were seen walking through the city. There were really no cars around walking down the streets looking for food, looking for pretty much anything they could eat. Some of these other cases, I was wondering exactly why animals would be in cities. A lot of these reports are saying that now that people aren't there, animals aren't scared and they're starting to go out into the cities. But you still have to wonder why would animals go to cities if you've this great wild habitat and it suits all your needs why would you need to go into the cities? It seems like a weird thing for an animal to do, even though one thing that they are really fearful of, humans and traffic and stuff, is all gone. It's possible that uh, these mountain lions in the surrounding areas of Chile, given that people are not in the streets anymore, there's not as many cars anymore, that they're starting to venture off into the city, potentially to look for new food sources. It could be that these animals are now eating stray dogs and stray cats. I know this is sad, but this is what's going on in India with the leopards there. Mumbai, which is a highly populated city and a huge human population, and there are leopards that live really in the midst of Mumbai, and one of their main food sources is thought to be these street dogs. It may just be that going through cities is easier for these animals to get from point A to point B. I do know a lot of animals will use human trails in wild areas, just like we use trails, because it's easier for them to move through the forest. In fact, some animals, like some predators, prefer to use trails, and scientists have found this out from camera trap research. When you put your camera traps out across a landscape, if you put it on trails only, that creates a certain bias because certain animals will favor those trails. Camera traps, for those of you who don't know, they are real cameras. They are designed to go outside for long periods of time. They're triggered by both heat and motion. Whenever an animal walks by, it takes a photo of them. And this is how we study animals day and night, and we don't have to worry about our presence affecting their behavior. And then depending on the animals who are on those trails, certain animals might avoid those trails. So, for example, it's pretty common for predators to like to use trails, in which case then prey species may avoid them so they don't get eaten. Now, in some of these cases, the animal stories aren't really that unusual or that surprising. There was a story that I retweeted from South Africa, or it was an image that I liked. And because there's no tourism going on in South Africa, these lions were able to sprawl 
along the road. They were probably just basking in the sun, and the road was probably a warm place for them to lay, and they were just laying all across the road. And obviously, they normally couldn't do that in the midst of tourist season because there would just be so much traffic. Even in these national parks, there can be lots and lots of traffic. Some other stories that aren't really that surprising uh, for me as a wildlife biologist is definitely the coyote ones um, and also the raccoon ones. Coyotes are pretty urban in many areas across the United States. They are really great at adapting to all types of environments. And there are coyotes living in the largest cities in the United States, in New York City, in Chicago, definitely Los Angeles. And it's really quite remarkable how these animals survive and just the fact that they're in such urban landscapes. I had this one conference that I went to. It was actually an urban wildlife conference. And a scientist who studied these coyotes in Chicago actually picked myself and my boss up from the airport. And as he was driving, he was showing us where the different coyote packs lived. And I really couldn't believe that they were living in this downtown of a downtown, like really, really downtown. It's amazing that they can survive in these landscapes. There's definitely coyotes in Central Park as well. Lots of coyotes in San Francisco. In fact, it's not even too unusual for people to see them. What's really going on is that the animals aren't necessarily making a comeback. They're not necessarily reclaiming the earth. They were there to begin with. So it's not like with these cases that animals are all of a sudden like really reproducing and repopulating these cities and that they're truly making, quote unquote, a comeback and reclaiming the earth. But it's more that these animals have been there all along and that they're just really good at hiding and that us humans don't see them. And this is definitely the case for coyotes. Although across the United States, there's a lot of incidences of them becoming more bold, people seeing them a lot more. I've been here in North Carolina. They're in every county in North Carolina, and I've been in the woods quite a bit, and I've never seen a coyote here. Even in Chicago, if you think about all those people there, people rarely see them, and that's that's quite amazing. The good news about that is that when we come out of this lockdown, as we're starting to right now, we're not necessarily going to lose this wildlife. It's not going to disappear from us. It was always there to begin with. We just didn't see it. And what the animals did, probably in addition to being well camouflaged and avoiding humans, is shifting their behavioral patterns. There was a big study that came out a year or so ago that showed this worldwide effect of animals becoming more and more nocturnal. And this was irregardless if they were uh, diurnal species, species active during the daytime, compared to nocturnal species. The coyotes are all there around California, Chicago, New York City, all over. Coyotes are everywhere. But they're just becoming more bold in what they do during the daytime because there's less humans around. And I suspect that these animals are really good at telling when 
there's a lot of human activity versus not. Because it's been pretty amazing how we've seen these animal stories come out just after like a week or so. They responded pretty drastically. And these animals, these are also the urban animals. So they're very resilient species. They are living in extremely urban environments. If you think about urban coyotes, raccoons, raccoons are highly resilient when it comes to urban environments. So they're probably quick adapting to begin with. They're probably good at making quick decisions around people because they're used to living around people, even though we don't see them as much when we're in the cities or we don't see them at all as when we're in the cities. How unusual is it for a raccoon to be seen in the daytime? It's not super duper unusual. That's my very scientific term, super duper. It's not, I wouldn't say it's common to see raccoons during the daytime. They're definitely a nocturnal species and that's that, that doesn't matter about humans as, at all. They're not being um, pushed to be nocturnal. They're naturally nocturnal species. But we do get them on the camera traps during the daytime sometimes. And again, they'll especially change that behavior if they are eating certain food sources for example, I had a had somebody on my Instagram message me about a raccoon that was out during the daytime. And the first thing I asked was, you know, was there food out there? Do you feed your animals out there? And they did have bird treats out there. So that raccoon probably came out during the daytime probably to get those bird treats. I had this study where I had these feeding piles out for raccoons to attract them. It was these feeding piles of dog food. And by far and large, we would get most raccoons during the nighttime, but we would definitely get some activity during the daytime as well. If you see a raccoon during daytime, it doesn't automatically mean it's sick or it's rabid. They do come out once in a while during the day, just like you might go outside once in a while during the night. How can these animals live in these cities? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And a lot of people actually think that these animals are all scavenging, particularly scavenging on our scraps. They are living off of our leftovers, food waste. But the diet analyses of some of these species really show that they're hunting. And this is true for the coyotes in Chicago, that most of their diet is from uh, prey items and not from uh, food garbage. They're not just scavenging. And I think that's pretty remarkable that they're able to survive in these cities and hunt. I mean, it's really amazing that they're, they've adapted to the cities, but not in a way that they're attracted to us through our food resources, but really just as a new niche for them. And if you think about it, cities like Chicago, New York, they've been here for a very, very, very long time. So it's not like we just started expanding those cities and we're quote unquote exposing wildlife. This is what a lot of people think. Like when we start to see more animals, people are like, well, that's because we're destroying their habitats and the animals don't have as many places to go. So you're more likely to see them. But in these cases of these long established cities, it's really animals that are colonizing the cities once again. These cities were constructed a long time ago, and they've only been growing in human population density. And animals tend to avoid humans. So it's actually more of a new thing that animals are moving in to these areas. 
Now, of course, both things might be going on and talking with some colleagues, it does seem like different things go on in different areas that that humans are coming into contact more with wildlife because we are cutting down more of our habitat. But it also seems like some species are adapting to, or some larger species, there's always been species, but some larger species are adapting to living in these highly densely populated areas. We were actually surprised by the results of a large-scale camera trap study that we did This took place in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Washington, D.C., and we worked with volunteers across both of these cities setting up camera traps. The idea was that they set camera traps up in their backyards, and we filled in some gaps. We wanted to cover all different types of habitats. We sampled, we placed cameras in areas of larger forests, smaller forests, and we did so that the camera traps were across a gradient. And we called this the urban to wild gradient. If you think of any city, at the heart of the city is really the most densely populated area. If you think outside of that area, imagine concentric circles around that area or layers like an onion each layer becomes less and less densely populated and developed by humans. We had urban areas, suburban areas, exurban, rural, and the wild areas. And in our study, we found that there were no significant differences between species richness and abundance across the suburban to wild gradient. We didn't have that much data from the urban studies because it's really hard to set up camera traps in these urban areas. The results of this were pretty incredible. I started to see this early on in my school camera traps. For the last six years, I was working in a a study with teachers, actually. And normally we have adult volunteers participate in our program and set up the camera traps. And we were working with teachers. We were collaborating with them to integrate our eMAML research, our citizen science camera trap research, into classrooms. I was co-designing lesson plans with teachers, and the teachers would implement it in the classroom. Students would set up the camera traps, upload the photos, identify the animals, and send them to us. I started doing this before this urban to wild study was officially taking place, and I started to see that in these little school patches, so these are just areas of small green space, really, really small green space at schools, but we were getting animals like raccoons, opossum, deer, foxes and coyotes. And these weren't necessarily really rural schools. Some of them were more in the exurban areas and there were some pretty big green spaces around them, but quite a few of them, actually the majority of them were in really suburban areas. Like there's this one school that's across the street from a large outdoor mall And we had multiple foxes and coyotes on that camera trap. And again, there's like, there's like hardly any green space at this school. It's really just like a small little row of trees. So that was super exciting. 
I had compared the school camera traps to another citizen science project that we ran in a suburban park in North Carolina to compare. We compared the detection rates of the different animals. This is the average number of times a day that you see the animal. And the school camera traps actually had higher detection rates for almost all the animals except for deer, and there was a flying squirrel that was found in the state park as well. I just thought that that was really cool, that these animals could persist on these little school properties. Now, of course, the animal is not just living there permanently, unless it's a smaller animal. These little green spaces around schools take up part of the home range of the animal, What we found through the Urban to Wild study is that these green spaces were actually the most important for animal abundance and presence. And even the small green spaces we included in our models, um, two different sizes, small and large. And as long as these animals had enough green space in the form of these small patches, they could persist. There are some caveats to take away from the study. It is good news. And in a future episode, I definitely want to talk about the right ways to attract mammals. But there's also some things to consider with the locations of this study. This study took place in two cities on the eastern United States. And these cities have been developed for a long time. Predators are typically the animals that respond the most to human presence. They tend to decline with increasing human presence. And the apex predators have been removed from the eastern United States for um, quite some time. So we no longer have gray wolves and we no longer have mountain lions. If we did this study in an area that had these apex predators intact, then we might have seen different results. And one of the animals that is the most sensitive to urbanization is the largest cat we have here in North Carolina, which is a bobcat. We rarely find them in suburban habitat. They tend to be only in exurban and rural areas. So the cool news is that a lot of these animals are coming out. They're bolder now than us humans inside. But quite honestly, these are the animals that were probably bolder to begin with. And they were always around us. We just didn't see them. A lot of people are really shocked by what animals they have in their backyard. They think they don't have any animals. And when they put a camera trap up, then they see animals they never expected to. If you want to have fun, you should definitely get a camera trap and set it up in your backyard. The exciting thing is, yes, these animals are coming back, but animals are not necessarily reclaiming the earth, at least in the ways that would be really good for conservation and the planet. These are the species that have been around us, have been living around humans um, for the past few decades at least, and are more urban adapted. Some really good stories, though, that have come out of the lockdown have been for sea turtles. All species of sea turtles are threatened and endangered. They come up to the beach to lay their eggs, and the eggs are in the sand for a couple of months, and then months later, the little baby sea turtles emerge. And oh my God, I got to see one when I was in Hilton Head, South Carolina, it was one of the best days of my life. Maybe I, I actually should do an episode on sea turtles. I plan on doing that for my blog. 
Anyway, so sea turtles have really benefited from this lockdown because they're really sensitive to human disturbance, especially light. That's why we encourage places to have sea turtle-friendly lights. This is because the sea turtles confuse the light sources with where they're supposed to go in the ocean, and they end up going into these human-developed areas instead of going into the ocean where they need to go. If you've watched Planet Earth 2, there's this really sad sequence where they show the baby sea turtles going into the city and them getting trapped in the sewers. And I really hope that those people took those sea turtles out and returned them to the sea. I know that's interfering with wildlife, but in this case of a threatened and endangered species, I personally think it's a really good thing to do. Anyway, so it seems like this lockdown has been good for sea turtles, that they're coming to beaches more, they're laying more nests, and more of the nestlings are hatching and hopefully making it to the ocean safely. Well, these stories seem like they're pretty good for animals. It seems like animals are enjoying roaming our cities, or at least some of them are. The lockdown has also affected wildlife in a really negative way, and this may come to a surprise to some people. Initially, when you think of the lockdown, you think of everyone staying inside, which of course is probably good for wildlife because they're not disturbed by humans all the time. But our presence also helps protect wildlife. This is especially important in Africa, Asia, where certain areas rely heavily on tourism. I've heard stories of poaching increasing across the world, rhino poaching. Somebody told me through my Instagram that there was poaching increased on fishing cats and just in general more snares throughout the forest. And this is really the sad thing because although tourists does have an impact on wildlife, one of the impacts is actually that it's really beneficial in that It provides a safe space for wildlife. And if you go to these parks where animals are really used to tourism, there's a lot of tourism there, you can really tell the difference in animal behavior. I did an internship in Kenya, and we went to this park, Amboseli National Park, all the time. And this is not only an important park for tourism, there's a lot of tourist vehicles there, but there's also a lot of research conducted on these animals. These elephants were really used to people, at least tourists, and actually there's been studies done on the elephants that they can tell the difference between tourists and local Africans and even differences amongst different African tribes. Anyway, these animals are so nice and pleasing and seemingly friendly. You can get really close to the elephants. They just don't seem bothered. But where I worked in Gabon, the elephants acted totally differently. They were extremely skittish. Even if they heard a car, they would run away. It was actually really hard for me to study them because I would drive up and try to take as many photos as I could of individuals. That was a really important part of my study. And like the second I turned off my car or they heard the car or they could get a whiff of me. Elephants have a really good sense of smell and they can smell our car, smell me. They would just run. And these elephants were also really dangerous in the forest. We had to walk in the forest so carefully. Normally when you enter a forest, 
You just kind of walk into it. You don't even have to think about it. But every time we entered the forest, we would have to stand outside for at least a good 30 seconds listening for any signs of elephants. And we always walked slowly through the forest because when you meet an elephant in the forest, they can charge you. I've been charged. It's a really scary experience. So I tried to avoid it at all costs. Whereas people in East Africa or South Africa, they rarely talk about animals charging them. But in other areas where they're more heavily poached, you got to be careful. What's going on then is there is a big loss of tourism because nobody's traveling to go on safari anymore. And therefore, a lot of these animals are more susceptible to poachers. I also suspect because that these animals are more used to people that perhaps they are an easier target for poachers and they might be able to tell the difference between poachers and tourists but if there's but if there were no poachers really in the area and then all of a sudden there are poachers they might they might have to learn that lesson too late one of the things that you can do to really help wildlife is donate to conservation organizations One of the basic things that they fund is rangers on the ground, and this really makes a big difference for poaching. Just simply having people on the ground in these forests, in these parks, patrolling the parks, really helps reduce the amount of poaching. You can donate to your favorite conservation organization. African Wildlife Foundation does a lot of this, and so does Wildlife Conservation Society and World Wildlife Fund. There's some of the major conservation organizations, and they definitely fund a lot of ranger programs. I know everyone is on economic hardships right now, but if you want to help wildlife remotely, that's one of the things that you can do. Before I go, I just wanted to tell you what's going on the blog and my YouTube this week. Some weeks I'm going to try to synchronize them all with a podcast to do the same topic, but I'm not there yet. I have been having so much fun blogging about my experience in Borneo last year. I took so many photos. I went on safari to Duramacot Forest And after that, on a river cruise on the Kinabatangan River, and I'm just going through all of the animal photos that I have. I have two posts up about the mammals that I saw. I'm getting some more posts up about the birds and other wildlife that I saw, and it's just really fun to go through my photos, especially after my intense Tiger King blogging. Tiger King really took a lot out of me. I was blogging my heart out. And it kind of drained me a little bit. So it's really fun to look at animal photos again. And YouTube, I finally finished my series on FAQs for becoming a wildlife biologist. Where Really what I did is I Googled about becoming a wildlife biologist and I saw the most asked questions. And I wrote a blog post on this, but I also created a YouTube video series answering these questions. It's a very weird career And I never knew how to get into it. I just had to ask people who were in the field over and over again what their experiences were and how they got into this field. 
So I made this video series to make some of this information more available to you. And I am also writing a book about becoming a wildlife biologist that will be out this fall. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I had so much fun with you today, and I appreciate all of you. And catch me on social media at The Fancy Scientist. Don't hesitate to reach out to me. Give me a show idea if you have a question. I love talking to my audience. So thank you guys so much, and have an amazing day.